Women on the Rise is supported by The Riveter, a modern union for working women, offering content, community, and co-working spaces, all designed with a focus on women and work. I've been a member of The Riveter since nearly the beginning and have proudly watched them expand from Seattle to cities around the country. You might even remember that their CEO and founder, Amy Nelson, was my very first guest on this podcast. Countless collaborations and friendships have come from my kitchen conversations and post-event chats with my fellow Riveters, both women and men. The Riveter believes that equity and opportunity should be a reality, not a promise. Visit www.theriveter.co to learn more. And by Armoire. Do you love variety but hate the clutter and expense of new clothes? That is totally me. So I just signed up for Armoire, a clothing rental service for today's boss lady. Armoire gives me access to designer clothes I can exchange on my schedule for a flat monthly fee. I get access to a guilt-free flow of new clothes without the hassle of shopping or dry cleaning. You can ask anyone. I hate shopping. Women on the Rise listeners can try Armoire today for $100 off your first month using code WOTR100. That's WOTR100. Visit www.armoire.style to get started. I have always been an incredibly curious person. I've always been a very hard worker. And I think I've always, on some level, believed that there was something of value in whatever my circumstances were, even if they felt rough at the time. So I tried to learn what I could from each of those experiences. Welcome to Women on the Rise. I'm executive coach and lifestyle expert, Lara Dolch. And each week, I talk to thriving women about the practical self-care strategies they use to fuel their success and pursue what's most important to them in their careers and lives. We get real about topics like healthy eating, exercise, sleep, stress, time management, happiness, mindset, and productivity, while busting myths about work-life balance and being perfect along the way. My goal each week is to uncover new insights that you can immediately apply to your life to recapture your momentum, mind, body, and soul. Hey, podcast listeners, Lara here. It's the end of October, so I just have to ask you if you've rated or reviewed the podcast yet. If you have, thank you so much. If not, please hit pause and take a moment to do that now. I'm trying to get to at least 75 five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts by the end of the year. We're at about... I don't know, 53 or so right now, which is amazing. Oh, and I should mention that if you listen to Women on the Rise somewhere other than Apple Podcasts, that's totally fine. I'd love a rating or review there too. The more reviews we have, the more women will find the podcast and be able to join in this really important conversation we're having about self-care and success. So please consider helping out. I truly appreciate it. Oh yeah, and have a happy Halloween. Today, we're talking about curiosity, specifically curiosity as a mindset that can help us uncover opportunities, navigate challenges, and find our place in the world of work. Like some of you, I'm guessing, Kristen Bashaw graduated college at the height of the Great Recession with few job prospects and feeling disillusioned by the you can do anything you want if you work hard enough message she received growing up. But Kristen is a naturally curious and I would add resilient person. So she leaned into that curiosity as she found herself taking jobs she'd never expected to take, trying to learn what she could and take it with her to whatever came next. These days, Kristen is Director of Learning and Development for Columbia Hospitality, where she designs and delivers training programs that bring out the best in her team members, helping energize and drive them to produce improved business results. 
We talked about how Kristen's curious nature became both an asset and a liability as she navigated her way to a satisfying career. The pop culture phenomenon that led Kristen to pursue a degree in criminology and how it turned out to be surprisingly relevant to her current role in learning and development. Why Kristen thinks companies should make more space for emotions in the workplace and how she thinks employees, especially women, can begin moving the needle from inside. And how Kristen became a reluctant yogi and how practicing yoga changed not only her negative perception of yoga, but also the way she approaches work and life. Kristen is insightful, smart, and kind of hilarious. If you've ever felt stuck in your search for a job or career you love, you'll love our conversation. First of all, thank you so much, Kristen, for taking the time to do this. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. And you know, what What prompted me to invite you on the podcast is because we were having drinks one evening, well, really the first time we met through a mutual contact. And you started telling me about your career journey. And I would love to just sort of start with how you found your path. I think that a lot of my younger listeners in particular often wonder how the women that I talked to got to where they are. And you had kind of an interesting and, you know, somewhat rough start because you graduated, you know, just before the 2008 economic downturn. Can you um, share a little bit about your story? Yeah. Well, I mean, first I can relate to that experience so much of just looking for somebody to be like paving the way and sort of modeling how things are done. I still feel that way a lot, but I will say my journey or my path has been a very winding road um, with a lot of detours and and challenges along the way. Um, You mentioned the economic downturn, and that is really kind of the backdrop of my early career. I think the economy crashing was one of probably several major factors that felt like they were working against me when I came out of college. Um, I think most people struggled professionally and financially during that time, but I think recent college graduates had a particularly difficult time, not only because so many of us graduated with this you know, overwhelming student debt that completely outweighed our immediate earning potential, but also because there was this overwhelming sense of disillusionment because of what was happening with the economy. Um, there's this you know, really cartoonish narrative about millennials, which which I happen to fall into the quote unquote elder millennial bracket. <laughs> I love that elder um, millennial. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's this narrative that everybody has heard about how millennials expect participation trophies for everything we do. And while I find that narrative to be grossly oversimplified and reductive, I do believe that many of us grew up being told by our parents and our teachers and our coaches that if we just showed up and participated and put in the work at school or our activities, that we could be anything we wanted to be when we grew up and that we would ultimately be rewarded for our efforts. And so I I think that's really where that narrative comes from. But coming out of college and into a recession, that thing we were told just felt like a colossal lie. I mean, professional jobs felt out of reach because, you know, we we didn't have enough experience as recent college graduates. And then when that avenue felt exhausted and we started turning to more labor-based jobs, those were out of reach too because we were told that we were overqualified based on our newly acquired education. Um, so there was this, you know, for me at least, there was this period of, of limbo and, and the workforce just felt almost impossible to enter. Um, so I, you know, for the first few years, I did whatever I had to do to pay the bills. I mean, I hustled. I, you know, worked retail. I waited tables. I nannied. Um, I took a lot of jobs that, you know, definitely were not my dream job, but 
you know, I, I, I had bills to pay. So, you know, that definitely did not feel ideal at the time. But I think one thing that I had working for me is the fact that I have always been an incredibly curious person. I've always been a very hard worker. And I think I've always on some level believed that there was something of value in whatever my circumstances were, even if they felt rough at the time. Um, so I, I tried to learn what I could from each of those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I remember you mentioning that before that frame of curiosity. And I feel like that can be so helpful in so many different areas of life. That's, I won't spin out into that too much, but I, yeah, I think with the job stuff that it's just a mindset that can help you navigate the ups and downs. How did you go about uncovering opportunities in that time? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, existing in the backdrop of the recession, it didn't feel like there were a lot of opportunities, you know, immediately presented in front of me. Um, so like I said, I had to, I had to just kind of take jobs where I could, but it, the opportunity really was in the mentality uh, that I had in those circumstances. So it's like, you know, I worked at Bed Bath & Beyond stocking shelves, um, or no, not Bed Bath & Beyond, but uh, Bath & Body Works, right? Just arranging limitless rows of lotion. And and that sounds kind of mundane, I guess, but I also was like, okay, well, how does this store work? Like, how does it operate? And even though it wasn't my job to be in charge of the operations, I made it my job to learn, you know, and just to understand. And so I think even, you know, in that situation where the work itself or the labor itself was not immediately relevant to me, I knew that there were, you know, people there that could teach me things that would be useful for me to know. So the opportunity was not the job description for the company. It was making it my job, whatever shape that took to learn what I could in those, in those circumstances. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So what experiences, and I know this, it's not, it's never a direct line, obviously, but (laughs) looking back, what experiences kind of led you to your current career in learning and development? It's interesting because in hindsight, I mean, I, I will say for the first 10 years of my career, it felt like I was zigzagging and ziplining from here to there. And it all felt very random or sort of schizoid in its pattern. And part of that, like I said, was out of necessity. But part of it, too, was the, I guess, maybe the ugly side of my curiosity, which sometimes manifests in an inability to focus on any one particular thing. And I think that that even showed up in college when I was figuring out, you know, what my major would be. And I, you know, I sometimes tell this story when people ask me, you know, why did you get a degree in criminology? And the story is that the first two years that I was in college, I had this broken TV that only got like two channels, one of which was TNT. And (laughs) TNT back then played like, I don't even know if TNT is still a thing, but back then it played reruns all day of like, Law and Order SVU and the X-Files. And so somewhere along the line, just because that's like all I was watching, I got it in my head that my past in life were I could be Detective Olivia Benson or Special Agent Dana Scully. <laughs> I <laughs> love it. Going to Seattle U, they did not offer any paranormal investigation classes. So I veered <laughs> hard towards Olivia Benson. Um, and, you know, I, I joke about that. But at the same time, I think my fascination in, you know, crime dramas and investigations and things like that, it was rooted in the fact that people in those lines of work have to know so many different kinds of things. And I wanted to know all the things. Like, I did not want to pursue something that was probably more practical, you know, like uh, accounting or something where you have this clear cut 
job path in front of you. I didn't want to choose a major. I wanted to learn as much as I could. And criminology is highly interdisciplinary in its nature. I mean, I, you know, I got to study economics and politics and law and psychology and sociology and statistics and, and even organizational development. And knowing a little bit about all of those things has actually really served me in my current career. So people, I think, maybe look at my resume or my LinkedIn and they're like, criminology, like, how do you go from that to learning and development? But really, you know, criminology is the study of what motivates people to do what they do and how do we deal with it when they make choices, you know, whether good or bad. And so again, I I think I've figured out a way to learn from the things that I've learned um, or been exposed to and sort of channel that into whatever I do. I'm noticing this, you know, the level of self-awareness and I don't know how, you know, you, how long it sort of took you to have that, but like just noticing about yourself that you're curious and that you, you know, felt like you might be bored if you did something that was sort of single track, like that's part of what helped, it sounds like helped you make that decision and, and the recognition that criminology had this broad um, scope to it is, is really interesting. And I feel like, can you talk about that and sort of, you know, maybe how you came to that realization. I'm thinking just for people listening who are trying to figure out what they want to do next, right? And like what they, what their natural tendencies might lead them to, that it might be helpful to understand how you kind of put those two pieces together. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely not a direct connect the dots thing. Like, it's not as if I declared my major in criminology being like, this will be broadly applicable. Right. Like, it was a hundred percent me being like, yeah, Detective Olivia Benson, totally. So it was not really well thought out. I think the wisdom has kind of come, you know, in hindsight, where I've hopped from job to job and in each opportunity, I've been like, oh, hey, I kind of know this. I know a little bit about this. And so I think it felt intuitive, you know, doing some of the jobs that I've done because I had this, uh, I guess, pretty well-rounded education in studying criminology. Um, But the self-awareness piece, I think, I mean, one, I've just always really loved learning. I I come from a background, you know, like a really blue-collar family. Um, Education was not something that was ever really pushed on me. Like, I don't think I ever even had a conversation that was like, I mean, even like, do you have homework? (laughs) Like, is that a thing you should be doing? Or, you know, let alone, do you want to go to college or do you need to prep for the SATs? And so I kind of stumbled into college backwards, just kind of out of, you know, well, I guess other people are doing this. I might as well do it too. Um, But not having people pushing me, I think did at at a really young age force me to take responsibility for my own life and and decide, well, if, you know, if I'm going to amount to anything, then it's going to be because I made it happen. And so I, I think that has definitely been what has motivated me in you know, my academic endeavors and then also my professional endeavors is just kind of this sense of like, nobody's going to live my life for me. You know, it's definitely up to me to, to handle my business. Yeah. Yeah. And just collecting those pieces. I mean, like you said, you know, in hindsight, you can sort of see the threads, but at the time it was more, it sounds like a little bit of it, you know, just, you know, crapshoot and some of it an experimentation and, and, and sort of noticing is, is kind of, you know, which I think is the, the case for a lot of us, right? The older we get, the more opportunity we have to like notice themes and, and sort of direct the ship in a different way. Yeah. 
And I, and I think I am guilty of, you know, looking back on that time sort of through, you know, rose colored nostalgic glasses and, and to romanticize the experience. But like, to be clear, <laughs> the entire decade of my 20s sucked. Like, like I, 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 if somebody said, hey, do you want to go back and do that all over again? Even knowing what I know now, I'm like, no, like I like I'm, I'm so like, and I don't want to discourage anyone in their 20s or make them feel like it has to suck. But for me, it did in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but I think it also, I think anyone who goes through periods of their life that are, you know, sort of marked by struggle or hardship, I think most people will say, yeah, but it made me stronger and more self-aware and it, you know, forced me to understand what I'm capable of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and as you said earlier, that curiosity mindset is part of what helps you, I think, do that yeah. in that space. You know, you were talking earlier about, you know, just that feeling that you had of, you know, if I'm going to have, I have to do this myself, like no one else is going to do this for me in terms of finding my career path. And since, you know, you're in the L&D space now, I'm curious about your perspective on, in terms of the employee and employer relationship, whose job it is to help employees grow. It's definitely a two-way street. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we're ultimately all responsible for our own lives and our own careers and our own developments and our own success. But on the other hand, there is an overwhelming business case for companies to invest in learning and development. You want your employees to be great at what they do and you want them to stick around because turnover is so incredibly costly. So I think, you know, sending people to training opportunities or to conferences or, or things that are going to help them ultimately be better at the work they do for you, obviously that's a wise investment. So I think it's the job of both parties. You know, it's the job for each of us to make the most of any opportunity that comes our way. And if opportunities are not coming our way, then we have to ask, how can I create my own opportunities and get creative um, and still figure out a way to learn and grow, even if somebody is not handing me that opportunity on a silver platter. Uh, But also companies would be very wise to invest more heavily, I think, in, in learning and development for sure. Yeah. What have you seen so far in this career as kind of some of the biggest challenges organizations have around doing that? Uh, you know, I, I feel like I've been pretty fortunate to work for companies that already kind of get it, um, at least that they understand there is a need for training and that it's valuable. I think the challenges lie in two areas. One, I think a lot of companies consider the success metric for training a yes or no answer of like, is training happening? Yes or no. And if it's yes, then it's like, hooray, you know, we're, we're doing our job. And so I think there definitely needs to be more focus on efficacy and on training people in the right areas. Um, And then the other challenge that I've seen is I feel like culturally, and this is not of any one particular company, but just in general, I think in America and maybe in the world, I think we're still really afraid of subjects that feel emotional. You know, I think for a long time we've existed in this paradigm or under this way of thinking that says there's no place for emotionality in the workplace. And I think that's only true if you view emotions as anything other than intelligent indicators of what's right or wrong. Like when we get emotional, it's because something feels out of whack. And I think rather than stifling or suppressing or suppressing the mechanism within us that tells us that or alerts us to that, then we need to learn how to listen um, and how to, how to leverage those emotions in a way that can be really powerful. But I think it still feels weird and you know icky to some people to go to those more emotional places. But I think the sooner we do, the better off we'll be. Yeah, totally. No, I, I actually, that's so interesting. How do you move the needle on that in a way that, you know, comfortable is not the right word because it's inherently uncomfortable to talk about emotions, I think, for a lot of people. But how do, how do you do that inside a, a, a culture that maybe doesn't get it yet? 
Uh, I want one. I mean, I think the work starts with us individually first, right? Like if, if you're not good at managing your own emotions and by managing, I don't mean suppressing. I mean, when your emotions come up, responding in a way that is effective. And so I think it, it starts with working on yourself and then modeling that for other people. And I think as women, we definitely have a huge opportunity to move this needle because I think society is so much more permissive. I think a lot of people argue about this, but I think you know, there's this narrative about women just inherently being more emotional, which I don't think is true. But I do think that our culture has allowed us or given us space to be more emotional because we've created that narrative. And so I think, you know, we have to, like I said, first start with ourselves and doing a good job of managing our own emotions, but then also showing people how to do that. Um, so recognizing that, being empathetic, saying things like, hey, you seem to be upset right now. What's causing that? Or like, what are you feeling? And just inviting that in a way that is not judgmental but just curious and helping people get to the bottom of whatever has them out of whack and just creating a space that feels safe for people to acknowledge those parts of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I love that example because I think that I can imagine that, you know, some people listening to this are, are thinking, well, you know, you can't cry at work, for example, because women get, you know, they like crying at work is not okay, but that's not what you're suggesting. You're suggesting, <laughs> you know, like, you know, being an example of, you know, being curious about emotions, both your own and those of, of your colleagues and coworkers. And, and like you said, opening up a space to have that dialogue, which are... Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, if you feel like a you know, rage storm coming on, smash the windows by any means, or like, if you're constantly crying, then I think people probably won't take you super seriously. But I think, you know, those behaviors come when we let our emotions get to a point like that, that's, that's the result of stifling and suppressing, right, when things blow up at that level. And so I think we have to get in front of it before it gets to that point. Uh, and I think we do that by just being curious, just at the minute you feel angrier the minute you feel like your feelings have been hurt or you're sad or whatever just being like oh why do I feel that way you know and and get to the bottom of it um sooner than later yeah yeah totally well and it's funny as I'm sitting here listening to I'm realizing that you know one of the tools that and I'm going to sound like such a cliche but my listeners won't be surprised one of the tools that allows me to sort of do that is you know a meditation practice which by the way I just have to be clear like it's not like I sit on a cushion and meditate for two hours a day it is not (laughs) I am not that extreme but I have found that the more that I do that the more I'm able to um, manage emotions, as you said. And, and I, um, which makes me think about what you were telling me about your experience with yoga, which I thought was so interesting because if I remember correctly, you started doing yoga at, at in sort of a rough time in your life and it was kind of against your will at a friend's prompting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Can you, can you, but then of course, you know, it sort of changed some things for you. So can you talk about that experience and why you started practicing and then, you know, how it changed things in the personal and maybe professional realms for you? Yeah. I mean, the the dots are definitely connected. I think, you know, practicing yoga and meditation have definitely uh, helped me to cultivate the mindset that I have about a lot of things right now. Um, But like you said, yeah, it, it, it did feel like it was against my will. Initially, I at the time was between jobs and I had just gotten out of a relationship that like really ended kind of catastrophically. And this was also right after a certain president that I'm not a huge fan of got elected. 
And it, and I also just felt this anxiety all around me, not just in myself, but in ever. Like it felt like people were losing their minds. And I am highly empathetic. And I think I felt a lot of that anxiety around me and, and started to really absorb it. Um, and I just fell into this funk where for like two weeks, I did not even want to get out of bed. I was depressed. I was unmotivated. And I have a, a really good girlfriend named Kelly Fiegel um, here in Seattle, who she's just a badass. And she has had a yoga practice for probably 10 years. And she kept inviting me to come to yoga with her. And I kind of thought it was just an invitation and not her saying like, no, seriously, like you need this. <laughs> she was pretty gentle about it at first. And then she was, then she was basically like strong arming me out of bed and forcing me into a pair of yoga pants and dragging me by my hair to the yoga <laughs> studio. Um, and it was such an act of kindness. I mean, at the time I wanted to choke her because my perception of yoga, I think probably came from you know, bad media. It was a lot of like twisty, bendy pretzel people on Instagram, like 20, 20 year olds in bikinis and Ipanema, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's not me. Um, so I didn't relate to, I think the images that I saw, but in that first yoga class, it was really just about breathing and moving your body and checking in with how you feel. And if you don't feel good, why is that? And I was like, oh, like this, I get like, this is, this is a practice that I've been doing for a long time. I just didn't know that it was yoga. So getting into yoga was simultaneously, you know, I resisted it super hard. And then once I was there, I was like, wait a second, I'm already a yogi, you know, like I'm, I'm already trying to tune in and I'm already practicing a lot of these things. And so it was a really natural transition once I stopped resisting it. Interesting. That's, I'm glad you shared that about your perception of yoga before, because yeah, I had a similar, you know, perception early on. I didn't start doing yoga until probably, well, I guess it's been eight years or so now, but yeah, it's, I think it can be whatever people want it to be. And it's unfortunate that a lot of the media that surrounds it, you know, can be a turnoff for, for certain folks who, who might benefit from it. How, how does yoga fit into your, your sort of larger definition of self-care? Mm, that's a really good question. I think it's the practice that we've already kind of talked about a little bit, but I'll just name it. It's this idea of observing without judgment. I mean, for me, that has been the number one lesson to come out of yoga, where in yoga, for example, just sticking with that particular practice, if you attempt to pose and it's all of a sudden really easy. And the last time you tried it, it was really hard. Your response shouldn't be, hooray, now I'm a yoga master, right? It's just like, oh, cool. What have I been doing that has made this easier for me? And you're just supposed to be curious about it and acknowledge it and celebrate it. And then at the same time, if you try something that is suddenly really difficult, whereas you know, a week or two before you were like nailing that pose, then same response. Okay, why is that? And so I think it really fits with this mentality that I've had of just being curious, but not assigning a label or a judgment, not telling yourself some kind of story about, oh, well, now I suck at yoga or, well, now I've arrived and I'm amazing. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't hop to any drastic conclusions. Um, just acknowledge what it is and be curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, it, it's that mindset is so useful in so many areas of life. Actually, can you, maybe you've, you've talked about this a little bit, but can you think of a, maybe a recent example in your professional life where that mindset has been helpful? Yeah. Okay. I mean, there, now that I'm thinking about it, there are a thousand examples that come to <laughs> mind. And I think it, 
it's, it's mostly related to the way that I interact with other people. And I think that mentality, not only just, you know, being generally being curious is, is really helpful, but I think it also teaches you compassion. In yoga, it teaches you compassion for yourself, you know, not to be too critical or too judgmental, but then you can turn that lens around to the rest of the world and to the people around you. And so if, if you're interacting with a coworker um, and they do things totally different from the way you do, or you think they're flat out wrong, the question is just like, oh, okay, but why? You know, why? So explain yourself, I'll explain myself, and then together we'll kind of figure out the path forward. Um, and so, I mean, there are situations all day, every day in any workplace where that is the case. And, and I think, you know, human beings are super unique. We're all wired a little bit differently. And I think, again, just that that mindset of, observing the way things are done or the way people are performing and not attaching a label to it and not writing a story about them or making them into some kind of character in your story, you know, I think is, is really important. Yeah, yeah, totally. What about other, any other habits or practices that you have that sort of allow you to show up for your work and life in the way that you want to? Yeah, a ton, but they're not related. I mean, I think they're, they're not what you might think. It's like, I, I think it's my job to get my head right <laughs> all the time. And that's really difficult um, having the head that I have. <laughs> I am naturally a very anxious person. I, you know, get overwhelmed. I, you know, suffer from depression, anxiety, all of these things that have kind of popped in and out of my life. And I think it took me way too long to figure out that working myself to death and sort of burning the candle at both ends actually makes me crappier at my job. And so the best thing I can do for myself and for my coworkers and for whatever company I work for, um, that it's, it involves, you know, cooking more often and going on hikes and, you know, doing all these things that are not related to the workplace, but that are definitely related to just being the best version of myself so that I can show up and do what I need to do and do it well. Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. Well, as we're wrapping up, actually, that, you know, reminds me, uh, you know, one of the the things you mentioned with hiking, I did see that you were on um, a hiking quest on your Instagram feed. What's going on with that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, this is actually the first year of my life that I said, goals, like New Year's resolutions. Uh, I've always been somebody who was like, yeah, I, you know, I'll set these crazy goals, and then I won't achieve them. And then I'll just feel bad about myself. And so I stopped just believing in the concept. And this year, I didn't necessarily feel any more capable, but I did feel like it wasn't really serving me to just have a mentality that I don't need to have things that I'm specifically working towards. And so one of the goals that I set was to complete 20 hikes before 2020. And when I made that goal, it sounded insane, especially living in Seattle, where there are so many months where it's not ideal hiking weather. Um, but I, I just decided I was going to do it. Unfortunately, I uh, the person I'm dating is, has been super supportive and into it. And so he's come with me and we've gone on these camping trips where we hike all weekend. And so I am now on hike number 16 out of nice. 20. Yeah. And and, uh, it's just, yes. And it's been so full of adventure and, you know, so good for my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, been, it's just been so much fun. And, and every time we go on a hike, we find a rock and we write the name of the hike and the date that we did it. And so we've collect, we've got this little rock collection now and seeing how they've piled up has given me this amazing sense of accomplishment, not just doing the hikes and checking them off my list, but having sort of a tangible representation of the many adventures we've gone on has been really, really cool. 
That is such a great idea with the rocks. I love that. I'm, yeah, I, yeah. Credit to him. It was his idea. <laughs> yeah. It's so nice to have a visual reminder of that. I think that can be super motivating. I love it. Thank you so much, Kristen. Where can people connect with you? In cyberspace. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you be more specific? <laughs> yes. Uh, my Instagram handle is lately I've noticed, uh, which is a reference to just observing and noticing things. And I capture things that I notice around me. Um, and then other than that, LinkedIn, Kristen Bashaw, B-A-S-H-A-W. Yeah. And I'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you again. This was so fun. Yeah, I had a blast. Laura. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Women on the Rise. If you're ready now to wake up with the energy, clarity, and confidence to take on your goals, visit lardolch.com slash women on the rise to get a few resources I pulled together just for Women on the Rise listeners. For show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit lardolch.com slash podcast. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. It's a huge help to the show and I truly appreciate it. This episode was produced by me with editing help from Dave Nelson at Lens Group Media.